Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at Hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Doubleheader, we got uh, Chukat and also Balak, which covers numbers 19 through the first few verses of chapter 25. The contrast of these two readings is between the way of life and the way of death. And the first section you could say is really the Chukat Chaim or the way of life or the, the statutes of life, the what um, the direction is to take you forward toward life. And what we see through this is we see a lot related to death and the reversal of death. So one thing to keep in mind is though we might think that death is normal because all of us uh, see death around us. It's um, with a, it's often said um Nature being red with tooth and claws, the way that the evolutionists put it a long time ago. And they said, well, that is the way it is, and that is the way that things progress. But what do we see? That is a path that only goes where? Goes down. It is a path that goes down toward decay. So thus we see a major message throughout the Bible is that death is really out of place, and the order of God is toward Um, making things, creating things, and thus corruption and contact with the dead is something that is barred from approaching the presence of God. And there are the, the embassy of the presence of God with the, the tabernacle. So we see that in this passage there in, in numbers 19, we've got this really mysterious ritual of the red heifer sacrifice and you might see the, the interesting thing happening with the sacrifice of the red heifer, that which is um, the death of one really bringing the, the purging, the purification of many, and especially from death happening in the midst. But you see also that this is a part of the teaching mission of what the great one whose death would also bring the purification of the many. And that's exemplified there in, in Hebrews chapter nine goes into that in great detail. So we see that throughout the word, the picture is that heaven is going to reverse this curse of death, the reign of death on all humanity. And that really that death will be swallowed up in victory as, as the word says. So it's very apt that this falls now on uh, July 4th when here in the United States are celebrating the, the, the Declaration of Independence signing and what that means as stating the intent for where the nation was going to go. Um, one of the things that <laughs> one of the things I often tell people is that, well, if you want to start something 
new, start a revolution, you better know where it's going. Otherwise, it will come around to get you. And the uh, French Revolution came about around the same time as the American Revolution. But um, its ideas of you know, fraternity, liberty, and didn't go that far because that was the only hallmark of it. And once people were released to their own devices, people came up with their own ideas of what liberty and fraternity meant. And suddenly... The, some of the leaders who started out the French Revolution then became victims of the French Revolution. And the same thing happened with other revolutions in the past. Another major revolution of that sort was uh, the Bolshevik Revolution, which started off the Soviet Union. And that started out with the idea, okay, we're going to throw off the oppressors, throw off the oppressive czar. Well, what ended up coming on behind that was far, far worse because those who joined in this did not fully understand the direction of the leaders that were taking this forward. They just thought, well, you know, the workers of the world unite and throw off these these chains of slavery. Well, if you don't have a, a direction on where you're going, you look out. Or if you don't understand the direction that the leaders of your revolution are taking you, then look out. Thus, that's where the Declaration of Independence in the United States is quite different. And the framers of the Declaration of Independence, you'll see in their uh, references, especially to, you know, we are endowed by our creator with inalienable rights. Well, that is a huge statement in and of itself. Uh, far different from the Bolshevik and the French Revolution in that. What is the direction that you're going to go? You've already framed it by saying, endowed by our creator. Okay, so there is now a boundary in which you're, you're activating. So we've talked about this in the, in the past about differences between statutes, the mitzvot, and the chulkot, or our, I'm sorry, the mitzvot being the commandments, the chulkot being the statutes or the ordinances, and the mishpatim or the judgments. Now, these all work together in a cohesive whole. And you'll see, as we talk about with the Declaration of Independence, Declaration of Independence, you might say, are the principles, the, the principles that are involved in uh, where this country is going to go, the the greater boundaries. And from that come the chukot and that the statutes or the ordinances in a sense uh, are somewhere, uh, our constitution of the United States is somewhere between the mitzvot and the chukot because they are general principles, but they also have a little bit of, okay, these are applications in the real world, further boundaries, fleshing out the boundaries for where this government can go and cannot go. But one of the things that you'll see with the, the uh, mitzvot is how are you going to apply these into real life? And so you see some of those boundaries that are put into the Constitution, what the executive branch can do, what the judicial branch can do, what the legislative branch can do, and what they cannot do. 
And then that's where it goes further into the what we call the Bill of Rights, uh, the first 10 amendments, and then the further amendments to the Constitution beyond that further restrict what is allowed and not allowed. But this idea, when you when you think about the the Torah and the, the laws that are within them, you get the, the basic um, the basic mitzvot. We could say start or stem from the Ten Commandments, and we see later on expressed that they come from really two instructions within those. You know, the love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and from Leviticus 19 to love your neighbor as yourself, and that's where the frame of the Big Ten come from, the Big Ten Commandments, and then the other instructions that come from them. So down to the statutes, okay, you've got those principles. Uh, love the Lord with all, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Okay, we see it then applied with the statute, the instruction, the application of that into the red heifer. And like we were talking about before, it is teaching what that death is not a is not the direction where heaven, the creator of heaven and earth the creator of life, the one who breathes the breath of life into all flesh wants to take the world. So then you see down to the application and the instructions for them. So when we look at all of these, we have to look to see that whatever we have as a founding principle and whatever applications we get from those founding principles and whatever then the judgments that come from them should then circle back around so that your the way you're applying them for a given situation is going in with the with the founding principles so we see that in our nation's history of the united states that you have the situation where the supreme court which is supposed to be saying okay you're going along the lines of where the constitution was and where the declaration of independence was. But then you saw in the court's history where they have strayed far from those and they are then taking the nation into a totally different direction from where it started. Thus then the, you had to have the correction brought back to bring what the judges were doing back into the realm of where the thing started. So the big question that comes to us today is this particular nation that we're in, are we going down the same road from where we started? Do we actually still believe we're endowed by our creator? And we'll see in the particular passage that we're looking at today, that is really a lot of what's under the hood of this. And even you might say, the, the strange account of, you know, Bilam with his donkey. In a sense, you're seeing the same thing play out there and the same sense of beating the donkey. And you, know, you can almost see this kind of, uh, you know, if this was like a movie, you'd almost see like a split screen of, you know, Israel kind of skirting through, trying to ask for its passage through, being brought through the land, then the split view of, uh, Bilam with the donkey and you know, beating the donkey for um, taking it in a direction where he didn't think it, it was wanting to go. So the question is, is that is 
Israel taking the world in the direction where the creator of heaven and earth wanted it to go toward that. The vision first set forth to Avraham that it was going to be a blessing for all people. And the, the expression there in Exodus 19, that it was going to be a kingdom of priests to, to be there to interact with the people and bring the people closer to God is that where the nation was taken. So we asked ourselves today here as we are coming up on yet another remembrance of the beginning of this country, but even back in 400 years ago with uh, there's a lot of talk about 1619 with the Jamestown landing and the slaves that were brought there. But the following year, 1620 was also the founding up in Plymouth of a quite a different model. The, the one in the South was about exploitation, domination. The one in the North about, okay, we were coming here because we want to worship God freely and, you know, working out what that means. So which legacy do we come from? Do we come from the legacy of Jamestown 1619? No, that's not what the declaration of independence or the constitution is all about. That is more of the legacy of the North, 1620, of Plymouth, and what that was founded. What was founded there. So as we look at that, we can see that the the march of this country is almost in a bit of a almost a same identity crisis that ancient Israel has had over the years. Why did we found this? Um, did we just come up with a with a fun place a fun name carve out a place dominate the world so to speak or are we put here for a mission to do something to bring it forward as expressed first with the the pilgrims in Plymouth and also then with the the founders of this country to be a blessing in the world versus a curse so thus, when we get into the discussion of the red heifer, you know, we see that this is to be an exceptionally um, unblemished, you know, in, in the modern world as the you, you picture here of uh, the two heifers that they've uh, raised so far, the two, uh, two one-year-old heifers. This was picture was taken back in February but um, raising them up and some of the expressions of what total redness is. Uh, these are some traditions that have come up, but the idea of exceptionalism that no, uh, the two hairs, red hairs next to each other. You can't have any other white hairs or other colored hairs around them, that the hooves are the red. And um, there's also the tradition about uh, the 10th red heifer in the line being about the final redemption. But we see also with the expressions of the ceremony of the red heifer, the sitter and the cedar and the hyssop and the expression of red and the scarlet thread. And you've got these, the symbols and the imagery of red, 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 and the interesting thing is red related to dirt from, you know, Adam 
So you got Dom for blood, Adam is dirt, and you know, Adam, the one who came from the dirt. And that idea of in the blood is the life. So you get this idea that life is some life is in the blood as, as what the word says. But the interesting point is think of then what the account is in the second part of this in the, in the Torah portion of Balak. They're coming one of the, the, one of the countries that they come up against is Edom. And that is kind of the, the red, the red people coming down from uh, the legacy of Esau and Sair. So a very interesting juxtapo- juxtaposition of the, um, the red heifer people coming up against the, the red people, the, the, the people that are obsessed with the, the things of, um, of the senses, which gets to what happened at the latter part of our section that we're looking at today in chapter 25. So one of the, the things that we see in this, uh, some other instructions of the, the red heifer that, this was a very unusual <laughs> offering, but it, even though this was something that would be the ultimate purifier, it was almost in a sense treated like toxic waste in, in that the um, offered outside of the camp and the instructions for the people that were involved with it and the basically almost deca- decontamination. Uh, anyone who came in contact with it, the high priest and the attendant who's burning it would be uh, they would require purification. So that's where some of the tradition was going. Well, who then is instituting the the priesthood uh, the first time, you know, with the the high priest? That's where some of the traditions come in of you know, Moshe being the, the one who brings the priesthood in to begin with because of, well, who purifies the high priest without the first red heifer, <laughs> which was... Uh, put in motion by the high priest. So the chicken or the egg idea. But one of the things that you see also with the symbols of the red heifer is very similar to the symbols of Yom HaKippurim. So you, the red heifer, that which purifies from death, that um, is to cover over and deal with this ideas of death and also with Yom HaKippurim, you have the covering of sins, transgressions, and iniquities, which do what? Lead you know, humanity towards death, away from the creator. So, um, and in previous times through this, we've, we've gone through uh, Hebrews chapter 9 about the red heifer. Um, one of the things we'll, we'll skip to this time around is to look um, at this passage here from Hebrews chapter nine. It starts in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered into the greater and more perfect temple a tabernacle, not made by with hands. That is to say, not of this creation and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. And he entered the holy place once and for all, having attained eternal redemption. 
for the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of the red heifers sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Messiah through whom the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that since the death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So, you could say that uh, this passage really is the from the light to the heavy aspects of it. The you could say the beginning part or the quote light part of it is expressed in Yom Kippur about Yom Kippur bringing the cleansings for the sins, transgressions, and iniquities, and also you have the. Uh, it expresses there in, in Hebrews and you see it back in Leviticus 16 where, where this is discussed for Yom Kippurim that the, the priest himself needs to go through the decontamination before he can even go express uh, and carry forward this covering of the sins, transgressions, and iniquities, then put it on to the second goat and it's then taken out of the, the camp. So you're sins, transgressions, and iniquities being led away. So one of the things that you could say from the, from the light to the heavy on this is expressed with Yeshua taking on the death penalty required for the Torah. And then he willingly submitted himself to death and then God raised him. So thus, you have this expression that humanity really dealing with this curse of death all the way from the beginning with Eden, but that can only really be broken by the Mashiach. So thus you have the, the, the beginning part of it, the beginning part of the healing of the breach expressed with the tabernacle and saying, okay, this is where heaven is going this is how you take it the rest of the way. This is where it is pointing. Where do you put your trust in? So do you lose your trust in God because the tabernacle comes, you know, first with the, just shortly after you're freed from the house of bondage, but then the Mashiach arrives for the, the fullness of that, you know, over grief. It's, at least 13 to 1500 years later. And do you trust God that much that you would be willing to wait that long to see the full expression of it? Or do you just get tired with God? We can get tired with things if they don't happen today or this, this evening or tomorrow, but imagine waiting 1500 years and you know, we don't, we don't live that long, but that is the one thing that we can say as patience, trust beyond the horizon that we can even see beyond the horizon of ourselves. So one of the things that you also see in this passage uh, that we're looking at today is numbers 21, the serpent on the pole. So we've seen uh, numbers 19 
we've seen that picture of the, <laughs> the red heifer. Then you see another picture with the serpent on the pole and the, the snakes coming in. Now, quite interesting when you, people do comparative studies of the other ancient religions of the time period, there are a number of inscriptions about serpents and how to deal with serpents because, you know, in that part of the world, when you've got deadly snakes, you're going you're gonna to encounter snakes. Well, what then do you do with it? And there's expressions of um, appeals to gods and also the incantations that you, you express over these, um, you express when you're hoping that the, the deities will will help you and help you survive your snake bite. Now, the interesting part of this is that you have in this passage in Numbers 21, you have this appeal to God, but there is no incantation. That's quite different in the ancient world from what you see in, in the Mesopotamian religions. There was a whole lot of incantations that went in there. And also the expression of the, the, the six uh, the the twisted snake, the um, often expressed as uh, Lotan in Mesopotamia, which is a rough translation to uh, Leviathan in the in uh, written in the Hebrew scriptures, and in one place even called the the twisted serpent. But in this case, instead of appealing to the twisted serpent, here the serpent is subjugated. So that is the important picture also that we're carrying forward as we get into the whole encounter between um, uh, Balak and Bilam is what deities are you appealing to and what deities are actually going to be helping you through all this. So which gets us to the section that we're looking at with Balak from chapters 22 through the beginning part of chapter 25. So why should we, why should we care about Bilam? Well, really what you see in this case and number of commentators have, have noted the, the parallels. There's a number of parallels in the story, not only between the blessings that were uh, presented to Avraham of, uh, to bless and not curse and who blesses you, I'll bless and who curses you, I will curse. But you also see the expressions of multiplying and being numerous without, without measure. But you see also that in this case, there is really uh, some ties between this encounter with Balak and also the encounter that Moshe had with the Pharaoh back in Egypt. Now, one of the things that we see at the beginning part of the book of Shemot or Exodus, it says that there was the a Pharaoh that arose that did not know Yosef. So uh, what connected beyond that, and you see later on with the encounter when Moshe goes up and, and uh, declares what the Lord says, you know, let my people go. He's like, well, who's the Lord? So not only did it not know Yosef, it seems like did not appreciate that what Yosef meant as the really a, a savior of Mitzrayim from a big massive famine that um, even brought people down from the the area of Canaan, such as uh, Yaakov and his family, 
brought them down to Mitzrayim where there was food. But also, who was the one who was uh, the power behind Yosef and the power behind Moshe? That not, not only not knowing Yosef, but not knowing the God of Yosef and God behind Moshe, who's coming there. So what you see with this Pharaoh, the Pharaoh was then had to acknowledge not only that the Lord was supreme over all the so-called Elohim of Mitzrayim. You see that expressed there with uh, the Lord giving the reason why these 10 plagues were coming down, but also that Israel belonged to the Lord and not to the Pharaoh. So you, you keep seeing this soft expression of power and it's like, Hey, let my people go, let my people go. When, as you see through the plagues, who is holding the upper hand? The Lord is holding the upper hand yet. He keeps asking, asking, asking. So Pharaoh has to get the message after a while. Hey, you know, they are here, but I really don't own them. They belong to another. And as we see through the expression of the 10th plague, that they were bought with a price, the death of the firstborn of Mitzrayim purchased the freedom of the firstborn of Israel and, and uh, all of the others. So you see then with, with Balak of Moab, Moab, yeah, which means uh, from father. Um, and that goes back to the uh, whole incident with uh, Lot and his family. So there was a connection down through time all the way back to Avraham and the, the general family. But this Balak who knew about the Lord and is the acknowledgement of the Lord in this whole interchange with uh, Bilam on this, but he had to really accept that the, the Lord is supreme over all the so-called Elohim. And also that uh, Israel has been chosen by the Lord to move forward, to take this legacy of Avraham to be a great people and to bless the world. So we also see that this message of Bilam is very important because it also teaches about what is happening with the people of God and the world around the people of God down to the, the day of the Lord in that time period. So um, there's, you know, some other places where we encounter mentions of uh, Bilam throughout scripture. We'll see him again there in numbers 31 when Midian is destroyed along with Bilam. And then you see him specifically mentioned in uh, Joshua 13 about Bilam himself being killed. And then, you also have Joshua 24, a recounting of the, the uh, interchange between Balak and Bilam. And you mentioned again also down in Nehemiah 13 and Micah chapter 6, which is you know, part of the Haftarah. And also a couple times in the Apostolic Scriptures, which we'll get to in just a moment. So this is a, a very important interchange between Israel and the world around him. And 
it, it's interesting that in this case, this is kind of happening in the sidelines because it's not directly happening with Israel. Israel's just camped over there and this whole thing between Balak and Bilam are happening to the side. But it is a testimony and a witness to the nations, especially ones that they think they know who the Lord is and they think they know how to control the Lord. Interesting little mention about uh, Bilam's name. You know, the various people have come across of what uh, the name of Bilam perhaps means. It could be like a combination of um, Bela and Am. So you got the basically a destroyer, destruction of people. So destroyer of the people. And that perhaps is what some people think that uh, uh, Nikolos may be a... Uh, translation of what that means, conquerors of the people that you see in, in Revelation chapter 2, where you see um, Bilam mentioned and uh, the Nicolaitans mentioned also in that, in, in Revelation chapter 2, in the messages to those two peoples. But something else also interesting of the, the Bilam son of Peor in history, uh, this is a... <laughs> This is actually a um, something that was found over in you know, modern-day Jordan. Uh, it was found back in 1967. This inscription on a wall of a, a temple uh, temple complex over there, and um, it's you know, you'll all, you'll see it uh, described as Deir Allah, which is the area where this uh, particular place was found, and it's dated. You know, they people guesstimate maybe it's around 800 BC. So this is, you know, well after the time Israel would be established that this particular place was, um, was in, in use, but it could date to even earlier than that. Um, some people have taken a stab at, at this translation, like with the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's a picture of it here. There's the, the fragment of it that, uh, is, available now um it's you know in uh, people taking stabs at because not only is it only a partial uh description of this this was like a mural on the side of a wall but also because uh the the language is kind of a mix of um perhaps some early early aramaic early canaanite kind of a mishmash of different languages that people think but the interesting part is, is that one stab at the translation goes, the misfortunes of the book of Bilam, the son of Beor, a divine seer was he. And then skips down a, a ways and continues on. Now, Bilam arose on the morrow. He summoned the heads of the assembly to him. And for two days, he fasted and wept bitterly. Then his intimates entered into his presence and they said to Bilam, the son of Beor, why do you fast and why do you weep? Then he said to them, be seated and I shall relate to you what the Shaddai gods, as the Shaddai Elohim, have planned and go see the acts of the Elohim or the acts of the God. So, and as, as, it, as it continues, you see this expression of the Shaddai gods and you, as we've had our discussion um, sometime back in Genesis talking about El Shaddai, there's various ways that 
that it, that can be translated. So El Shaddai, the, the God of Shaddai, the God of the, the, the God of the destruction, the God of the empty places, the, the one who makes things desolate, the, the, it's also translated God almighty because why he's the one who makes things barren that <laughs> will destroy the things that were there before. And some think that might relate to the expression of um, uh, the Lord as the one who brought the flood. But in the surrounding cultures, they also had the expressions of the Shaddai Elohim. So you know, perhaps this is the same guy that we're looking at here. This Bilam, uh, son of Beor, um, it seems to be expressed as a important guy, even down to roughly 1000 BC in the area, the same area of Moab as um, where the account comes in today. But the interesting point is, is that he was expressing the talking to various gods. And you see that brought up in this this uh, account today in the Torah is that, you know, he knows who the Lord is. And you see that the Balak is offering these presentations and saying, well, could you perhaps, maybe it's a little better from this vantage point, that vantage point, it goes to the high places of the Baal of Peor that comes up later on in our discussion today to make this presentation to the Lord. So if you take it back to the old name, the, the name that was that the Lord is known by El Shaddai, then you have the Baal of Peor. You could understand where, you know, Balak was just thinking, well, okay, well, we'll appeal to um, El Shaddai as well, you know, as our, the place here that we're appealing to Baal Peor, because we know that Baal the Baals of various types can be bought off and convinced, especially if you um, know, uh, have an inroad with the Baal of uh, Peor. We have a clash between the deities that are present. So in this discussion here between uh, Balak and Bilam, we have the prophecies that come forward and the prophecies that, that come forward are um, they've they got really four different prophecies that are spread across chapters 23 and 24. And they just keep ratcheting it up, ratcheting it up until you see the fourth time around where, you know, um, the alarm is dropping the pretenses of like, okay, I'm appealing to some other deity where he's like, okay, I'm appealing specifically to uh, El Shaddai, the one that's known by Israel as uh, yod heh vav -He. But what you see then is in each case, he is presenting that which the Lord is presenting through him. So in this case, we, we see that uh, just a little expression of where this was happening was uh, on the eastern bank of the Yardin River, down, down where modern-day Eliot is, is in the general area of this. So when you see that um, where in this map they mention, mentioned uh, Jabal el-Laws, you know, it's thought of that might be perhaps where the uh, real Mount Sinai was. So when it, the account today that said they, they went that back toward 
the Red Sea and then turn north. And so they're kind of skirting up along the edge. And then it talks about that they moved off to the edge toward the east. So they're kind of like going, snaking up along the Red Sea and then perhaps snaking back toward the east, out toward the, the desert and snaking upward. So you know, kind of bringing it into focus as to where Edom and Moab were, these Midian, Edom, uh, and Moab, just kind of going back again, uh, Midian down toward the eastern shore of the Gulf of Aqaba, modern-day Saudi Arabia. And then above that, to the north of that, Edom, and above that, uh, Moab. So you see this, you know, they end up having to skirt on the eastern edge of Edom and Moab because they were not let inside. So, all that said, one of the things that, um, to uh, skip down to looking at the fourth prophecy of, of Bilam, uh, it's captured in Numbers chapter 24, verses uh, 15 through 25. We see in there these prophecies of the Mashiach. So it, it is very interesting that it, it as we saw when we were reading through there, it, Finally, it's like you get the full expression of where Bilam is like, all right, the spirit of the Lord came upon this prophet who um, ended up deciding I'm not going to profit from this whole affair, but I'm going to let the Lord speak through him. So that's a very interesting warning is that um, the Lord worked through Bilam but Bilam did not devote himself totally over to the Lord. The Lord was one of the agents that he uh, worked with, one of the powers, one of the Elohim that he worked with, but it wasn't the only one. Bilam was mixing the various deities that he was speaking to, which then, as you see down with the idolatry, of Peor and, and the uh, enticing Israel to join in with it, you have the, again, what is it, your relationship with God that you're basing it on? Is it based upon the word that was presented, the promise that was presented, the word, the encounter that was at Sinai, or is it the word plus the experience and the experience being, as it was later um, brought in and <laughs> expressed at uh, Peor, was the enticements of what you're really inclined bodily to want to do. But again, like we were saying at the beginning of our discussion here today, whatever our outlook is and on life, what our main principles are, what, how we apply our principles and how we take those principles and then apply them to a specific situation. All those things have to be together. And what you see in Peor was a breakdown of that. You've got the principles of it and down to where you have to apply it. Um, you're in a situation where you're 
bodily impulses, you want to do something, what are you going to do about that? And your decision to how you want to handle those bodily impulses, your judgment, what mishpat you have for those impulses, does it line back up with the mitzvot up at the top? If your your mishpat that you have on a given impulse that you have does not line back up with the commandment, the mitzvah at the top, then you realize, uh uh-oh, this, um, how can I say it? Uh, The syncretism, the mixing of a particular belief systems in with the worship of the Lord have now taken you to a different Lord. And it's an expression that you see later on in Israel's history that uh, was a particular problem. So, which gets us to where we'll close out things here today with the Bilam of the latter days and why Bilam shows up in the apostolic writings. And we saw they expressed in the, in the prophetic writings back in, in Micah as well. But why is Bilam show up as an important figure to learn from uh, among the apostles? The apostle Peter really contrasts the true prophecy from heaven versus the false prophecy by um, touching specifically on this encounter that we read about here today. And that's, we're going to read from second uh, Peter uh, chapter one, starting in verse 16 and go through chapter uh, verse 16 of chapter two. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we, so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in our hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but by men moved by the Holy spirit spoke from God. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be also false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who, who bought them bringing swift destruction upon themselves Many will follow their sensuality because of them. The way of the truth will be maligned and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example of those who live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued righteous Lot 
oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. So all, all this said, it gives us a really good perspective on this, you know, the judgment coming down upon the, as it says, you know, the ungod, uh, the world of the ungodly, you know, before the flood, then cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And these are also images that are uh, pictured about the time of the day of the Lord. And, you know, Yeshua talked about how the days of the, of the coming of the son of man will be like those uh, days before the flood where, you know, they were, people were carrying on eating, drinking, marrying, uh, like life is normal. And then, wow, destruction came very quickly. Lot, we, we see the, it's very interesting when they talk about um, the unprincipled and the picture that people have of uh, things happening in, in Sodom and Gomorrah. One of the, you know, there are some who say it was about hospitality. There are some who say it was about uh, a particular type of licentiousness. But one of the, the key parts of that is unprincipled, unself-governed. You are just going basically on the desires that you want to have at any given point in time. So when you have this impulse that comes in, what is your mishpah? What is your judgment going to be upon that situation? Do any of the things that the Lord has taught apply? They, do they come to mind in that given situation? It, is that thinking even going on? And for, for the, uh, the younger listeners here today, I would say uh, you better start thinking about that well before you encounter any of the situations. Really think through and those kinds of situations and what you're going to do about them. Because if you don't, when they happen, it's, it's far, um, it's far too late as they you know, say, you don't, you don't uh, rise to the occasion to become a superstar. You rise to your highest level of pr- preparation. So if you've never prepared for a situation, um, guess what? When something happens, you're not going to just suddenly become a, a hero, courageous warrior. You'll fall back to whatever you've, you've prepared within yourself to do in a given situation. It's, it's not fun to think about it, but it is when we see the progression of how we put the words of the Lord into everyday life and how we see out the other side of whatever that impulse is, that the Lord's way is the better way to go. That takes reflection. That takes um, a real meditation upon the word day and night as, as the prophet David, King David said, you have to meditate on his word day and night to think through these situations and how you're actually going to handle them. So we see also um, you know, closing things out here with another place where um, Bilam is mentioned uh, directly and tangentially 
in the messages to Ephesus and Pergamum found in Revelation chapter 2, uh, verses you know, 1 through 7 and 12 through 17. So first to Ephesus. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But this I have against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes... I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So reflect upon this at the moment. You have left your first love. Here again, we're, we're talking about the, the commemoration of the declaration of independence. You know, do we even know what that was anymore? Is that still what moves us forward? And we, as people uh, who have had our own deliverance from the house of bondage there, um, expressed the exodus. Have we lost that first love of being free? Uh, are we still you know, wanting to go back and uh, dream about yesteryear and fantasize over how the world was before we knew the Lord and you know, how much more fun that is and how much more fulfilling that is. Now, one of the really sobering things that in this message sure to Ephesus is that, you know, if you don't remember where you started, then your light is then removed. So with Israel, we see over Israel's history that exiles came when, when Israel forgot why it was started, why the Lord brought Avraham out, why the Lord brought Avraham to that land, and why the Lord brought Israel out of the house of bondage. And you could say back from the house of bondage after Babylon, the Babylonian captivity, promising to bring more back from the Assyrian uh, dispersion. And then the far greater exodus here in the, in the day of the Lord. But again, you know, why is it that we, why are we going out or are we aspiring to, as it says, the deeds of the Nicolaitans, the deeds of the destroyers of the congregation, the ones who are looking to tear things down, like Bilam, which we get to in our next one. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold to the teaching of Bilam, who kept 
teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent or else I'm coming to you quickly and I will make war against him with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the congregations. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. So there's a number of the things from the prophets packed into that last portion there uh, about the, the hidden manna. But again, are we people who want the Lord's provision, the Lord's daily bread? Or are we looking for something else? Are we looking for the, the quail? And the example from our forefathers in faith is that um, you know, having a desire for something besides what the Lord provides uh, doesn't seem to go very well. So as we sit here and reflect upon our, our own independence from the house of bondage and also here in this country, uh, the independence from where things were going before. We think about why we started down this path. Is it worth continuing on? Is it worth it? Or is we just want to go do something else? Is this a way that is profitable and leads to life? Or is this a road that is leading to our um, you know, ens- enslavement and um, destruction over time are we destroying the world or are we renewing the world are we freeing the world or are we bringing the world into subjugation so thus you can see why the why the apostle yaakov in the letter james talks about it being the law of liberty because in it you you meet the one who breaks the bondage you meet the one who pays the high price and you see in the end that the one who did all this wants to bring the death and suffering to be no more. So that is, we say the good news of the kingdom of heaven, that's fantastic news. But the question is, is uh, do we want it or are we interested in something else? The, you know, basically the, the high calorie, no nutrition a form of fulfillment to the world, which in the end will leave you hungry and and the the very end will not be a way that continues on. All right, well, we'll close out with prayer here. Father God, we thank you for giving us your words. And Father, we just ask that the blessings that you've given us, that you've given our land, you've given our leaders that we will, we will not squander these things that you've given us. We will not treat them lightly. We will not treat your word lightly. And that's, we will move forward with the things that you've given us and be careful about the things that are spoken. They're said to be from you that we really check them out to find if they actually are from you. And father, we pray for, we pray for the violent ones to be turned back from their schemes. And we pray for 
the peace of Yerushalayim. We pray for the peace of the world. We pray for the Prince of Peace soon coming upon us. We thank you for all these things in the name of your son, Yeshua. Amen. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.